I gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. that. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. What? Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. And this week, we're talking about marketing lessons from Moneyball with special guest, founder and CMO of Entry Point One, Tim Ellison. There are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. That's a dollar, man. What? Welcome to Oakland. I need more money. We're not New York. Find players with the money that we do have. I like Perez. Got an ugly girlfriend. Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. You guys are talking the same old nonsense. Like we're looking for Fabio. We got to think differently. Who's Fabio? Tim, how are you? I'm great, Ian. How are you? I am doing great. We got just an awesome episode today. Talking Moneyball, talking Oakland A's, my childhood team, talking about all the crazy stuff that went down with this crazy, cool, interesting story. And of course, all of your background as well. So let's get into it. Why, oh why, did you pick Moneyball? That's a great question. On the surface, Moneyball is a sports movie, right? But to me, it's a lot more than this. The movie Moneyball parallels B2B SaaS and technology industry. It's about an underdog disrupting an industry operating with deep constraints. It blends tech bros and new approaches and heavy politics and everything's wrapped up with Hollywood emotion. Makes me think, you know, look what we went through a few weeks ago with everything going on with OpenAI. The movie's based on a 2003 book by Michael Lewis called Moneyball, The Art of Winning an Unfair Game. It was produced by Bennett Miller and scripted by Steven Zalian and Aaron Zorkin. And one of the reasons I chose it is because I love your podcast and Remarkable dives into the best storytelling out there. And I thought that this was a great pick. It is a great pick for all those reasons. And I think, you know, as you pointed out, and we'll get way more into today is like, it is about disruption. It is about data. It is about reading the tea leaves, but also looking at things in a different way. And that is exactly what every marketer needs to do out there. And especially if you're in content or in brand where uh, you got to look at things differently. So we're going to get into all that. But first, tell us a little bit about your company, Entry Point One. So Entry Point One advises B2B SaaS and technology startups and scale-ups. And we help our clients build, launch, and run efficient go-to-market initiatives such as new product introductions, geographic expansion, and partner-led growth. Meredith, we know a little bit already because Tim told us. But what the heck is Moneyball? <laughs> so as Tim mentioned, Moneyball space on a true story. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. 
And it's about the general manager of the Oakland Athletics or Oakland A's trying to assemble this competitive baseball team on a super tight budget. And this comes after the A's lost to the Yankees the previous year in 2001. And they start losing their star players. They're losing three of their best players. So the GM, Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt. It's Billy Bean of the Oakland A's. Also have to mention, Brad Pitt is an expert at eating on screen, (laughs) Um, especially in this movie. It's a power play here. But so he teams up with this player analyst who also happens to be a Yale economics grad, Peter Brand. And together they use something called sabermetrics to evaluate and sign these undervalued players. I asked you to do three. Yeah. To evaluate three players. Yeah. How many did you do? 47. So I was like, what are sabermetrics? What are we talking about then? I'm not a sports person, but anyway, I wanted to look this up. And it's like, they're basically statistics. They look at data of in-game activity. And so that includes things like batting, pitching, and fielding. And I was like, oh yeah, like batting 400 is an example of sabermetrics. So the term comes from the acronym SABR for the Society for American Baseball Research. So Anyway, it's a way to look objectively at player performance. So in other words, Peter Brand says, Using stats the way we read them will find value in players that nobody else can see. People are overlooked for a variety of biased reasons and perceived flaws. For example, age, appearance, and personality. And so you see Brad Pitt on this, like, at this long table of people all discussing possible players. And they're talking about, This guy has an ugly girlfriend. He doesn't play with confidence. This guy has a, you know, good face for the ladies. He's getting a little thicker on the waist, you know, and his reports about him on the weed and the strip clubs. Well, his on-base percentage is all we're looking at now. And so they're looking at all these other things, like, it has nothing to do with their performance. Um, So basing on sabermetrics was a way for them to look objectively at these players. Billy, of the 20,000 notable players for us to consider, I believe that there's a championship team of 25 people that we could afford because everyone else in baseball undervalues them. So the movie is really about challenging this traditional value system where big city teams that have money can afford better players, whereas these small market teams like the Oakland A's have to be more strategic about who they sign. He can't throw and he can't field, but what can he do? Oh, boy. Guys... Check your reports or I'm going to point at people. Get on base. And and really quick there too, Meredith, is that this is a sport that was like 150 years old or whatever, not 150, but like at that time, like 120 years old. So like hits and home runs and stolen bases, like how fast you can pitch, 99 mile an hour fastball. We've literally have data for 120 years on all this stuff. Everyone's right. been looking at the same stuff. So sabermetrics is like a different set of data. Looking at things like bat speed is more important than home runs or for whatever, you know, for example, or can predict home runs or whatever. But so there's all these different like little hidden things in there that are valuable. The other thing is that the A's were, their budget was like almost 10 times less than the Yankees when they lost. This guy should cost $3 million a year. We can get him for 237000 So they, like the Yankees had like, I think, $400 million budget. And I think the A's were somewhere like $50 million or something like that. So you're talking about like, it is really a David versus Goliath. And like, you can't sign their best players. Like as someone who grew up with 
birthdays as their favorite team and watching your favorite players get signed literally by the Yankees was super brutal. Jason Jambi's like my favorite player. And then he gets signed by the Yankees and they cut it. They shave his face and do all this sort of stuff. And we hated the Yankees. So part of this is like, you can't compete when people are signing away your best players because they can pay them more. So you have to do something else. And that's the next evolution. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to see like the reason why other players are overlooked too. Like somebody has yeah. a, a funny pitch or like the reserve pitcher they were looking at who had like a funny pitch, but he was like one of the best performers and was just getting overlooked. Billy, this is Chad Bradford. He's a relief pitcher. He's one of the most undervalued players in baseball. His defect is that he throws funny. Nobody in the big leagues cares about him because he looks funny. This guy could be not just the best pitcher in our bullpen, but one of the most effective relief pitchers in all of baseball. But yeah, yeah, when they're losing their star players and you're resentful of the, you know, these big teams that can afford to seal them away, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it just ends up that you have to think differently. So anyway, let's get into the making before we get more into the story here. When I looked into the the making of the movie, I was really surprised at how the production really mirrored the plot because a lot went wrong in the production. It almost didn't get made. So it had been in five years of development. And then Sony, who you know was the overarching company, they pulled the plug on filming seriously days before they were supposed to be on set to film. And that's partly because Steven Soderbergh, who is supposed to be directing the movie, rewrote the script like days before to make it more of a documentary style film because they had all of this footage that they could use. But it ended up being sort of creative differences between what Sony thought the movie should be and what Steven Soderbergh did. So it ended up being this passion project for Brad Pitt and Amy Pascal, who was actually co-chairman at Sony. And they rallied and got a bunch of other people on board, namely producer Scott Rudin, writers Aaron Sorkin, and Steven Zalian on board. And Brad Pitt ended up becoming a producer and they ended up getting the movie made for only like $30 million, which they had already spent $10 million and Another 10 million was for Brad Pitt's salary. Yeah. And so they had like 50 million total, but they had 30 million to make this movie with. And because of the budget, they often like had to shoot at night because the actual Oakland A's were using their own stadium. They faced time constraints, they faced bad weather, and they just like plowed through. And every set location and piece of gear had to be approved by Major League Baseball. What? So they had all of these constraints, right? Super tight budget, just like this team had. So what really stuck out to me with this was this like rugged determination to make do with what they had, to include their own connections, right? To be like, well, what do we have? What resources do we have? Reach out to people who they knew that they could loop into the project. And that's how they made this movie that's like truly remarkable and mirrors the plot of the movie anyway. So I thought that was cool. Do you believe in this thing or not? I do. I also think it's funny that they did the one anti-moneyball thing, which was they spent a ton of money on the big actor, right? That's like, yeah. that's like Billy Bean would <laughs> never do that, right? He would right. never spend a bunch of money for one person. But in the entertainment world, you can bank a movie with a star, whereas in baseball, it's probably more the opposite. But anywho, I thought that was really funny that they built it like Moneyball except for the one piece. So... Tim, why did it feel remarkable to you? I know you just rewatched it. So what was remarkable about it? Well, 
And there's a number of reasons I think that it's remarkable. You know, and Meredith was touching on some of these, right? First of all, it's a story of innovating an old school industry. You were talking about, hey, baseball's 120 or 150 years old, you know, and they've been doing all this stuff. This saber metrics and how they were looking at things based on the constraints that they had of the budget and of getting the right players, they really took a new approach to putting the team together and going to win. I think that this comes across in a scene where Brad Pitt, Billy Bean, goes and talks to the owner of the Oakland A's, which is Stephen Schott, and it's actually the CEO of Activision Blizzard. And it's totally remarkable because it's timeless. He just sold Activision Blizzard to Microsoft for $68 billion. And this guy's talking to him and he's saying, hey, my bar is here and I need this and I need this money. And the guy just totally turns the conversation on him. Right. And he says, okay, well, just get going, shake off the loss. So, again, innovating an old school industry. I think that, secondly, Sorkin and Zellian wrote a highly emotional film, turning this underdog into a hero through the new approach in the technology. You know, there were so many naysayers, there was a lot of bad behavior, heroes and villains, and you got into it. And even if you were not a sports fan, you know, my wife's not necessarily a sports fan, she loved it. And so I think that you might go in and say, hey, it's sports and it's baseball. No, it's actually a great story. And I think that that's remarkable. And then again, timelessness. At the beginning scene, you know, it was a month and four days after 9-11, and we panned to a shot of Giuliani. And this week, Giuliani was in the papers, again, for yeah. something completely different, and I'll leave that out. But there's that timelessness that just makes it remarkable. And those are the reasons, I think. Yeah, I mean, the first thing for me, like having been on the ground, like as a high schooler who was pretty into baseball at the time, watching these A's teams. I went to game five when we lost to the Yankees. I don't know if it was in 2001. It might've been in 2001, but it was the one where Gil Heredia let up like six or seven runs the first inning. <laughs> I was like, this is horrible. But anyways, as an A's fan, and who knows like the real story, or I mean, not the real right. story, but like as much of the exterior facing of the real story, that I saw it from an A's fan's eyes, which is, you know, we didn't know what was going on at the time, but these things that were happening, we just kept finding these prospects like Zito and Hudson and Mulder and like all these guys. And like, you know, Eric Chavez, who ended up not being like super good, but he was like rookie of the year. And, and then Miguel Tejada and like, you know, we like went and met him. He was like 14 years old and they like recruited him and God turns out he was actually like way, way older, but ages kind of weird and like all these crazy did you know that Meredith so there's this guy he's not in the movie they should have made a bigger deal with Tejada that's like one of my big gripes with the movie is because Tejada was like so amazing but anyways they went to where he grew up and he said he was 14 it turns out he was like 17 and so it ended up coming out like a decade later that he was actually like way older than he said anywho but he like became this amazing player and like we had all these guys and we kept finding these guys and then also there's all these guys like Matt Stairs and John Jaha and all these guys and these weird pictures and all this stuff and it was just this like eclectic group of misfits. Like the A's were the island of the misfits toys. The A's, there's a great t-shirt when I just went to an A's game the other day. I took my son to his first A's game. And they have these shirts that they saw outside of the stadium, fan created shirts that says, 
baseball's last dive bar. And it's like, that is <laughs> like, that is totally the A's, right? Like we close the bar. Like we, it's like this crazy group of people and all this stuff. When I used to go to games and like people would be driving, the players would be driving like RC cars around the track. They're all these like young kids and stuff. And so for me, like seeing all that on the ground and then seeing the movie sort of like watching this come to life and watching sort of the meticulous nature of data and all this, to me, the scene that really just slays me that I love about this movie is when they're sitting there tossing out players in the room and they're, and this concept of the five tool prospect. So this is something that I use. Meredith has heard me say this before. I use this about podcast producers where I think that there's like a thing called like a five tool podcast producer. You need to be able to like, write. You need to be able to be on air. You need to be able to edit. You need to be able to like correspondence and then engineer maybe and so anyways so i use that like when we're hiring producers and i got that from like that's a very old baseball thing and the idea of like when you see in that scene that they're sitting around there and they're taking all the five tool prospects and just throwing them out the window and being like no we're not going for those people we're going for matt stairs and john jaha because they can just hit home runs and that's all they can do why do you like him because he gets on base or we're going for this prospect and it freaking blew my mind where you're like, and that's like, you know, you get it in Moneyball, the book too, but to just see that come to life on the screen, that that is like how this stuff is done. It's like a group of people sitting in a room looking at cards being like, is this like, should we do this? And that's how marketing feels. You're just sitting in a room or now on zoom or wherever. And you're just like throwing crap against the wall being like, is this a good idea? Like, should we do this event? Should we do this piece of content? And then like it all of a sudden becomes like, you know, part of this whole strategy. So anyways, that's always the scene that sticks out to me as something that is like so remarkable and memorable and, and feels really accessible from a marketing perspective. Tim. So what do I think about that? I think that, as you mentioned before, you know, you're in a category, you're the underdog. How do you make it work? There's a lot of old things, but I get a lot of marketing lessons from this. First of all, instead of the subjectivity like you're talking about where everyone's going for these old things and Meredith you mentioned it well where they're you know they're talking about the girlfriend right what does that have to mm -hmm. do with it you know you're talking about more analytics based decision making right so using this equation on the upper left right here i'm projecting that we need to win at least 99 games in order to make it to the postseason we need to score at least 814 runs in order to win those games and allow no more than 645 runs. In the day when they were talking about this, this was really experimental. And it was the A's that this movie talks about how they use sabermetrics. It, it happened a little bit before that, but it was the A's that made this very, this experiment work. And then it was adopted by the industry. I see this happening in B2B marketing, right? I mean, whether mm -hmm. it was digital metrics that we adopted and it was all AdWords and how that came to be or SEO or marketing automation and then ABM and then now AI, we've been through these cycles, right? Innovation and disruption and how we're going to increase our approach or our throughput resource optimization you know efficiency was the word of 2023 so there's so yeah. many b2b teams that were forced to do more with less 
And this is the archetype of what that was. The budget was, they, they show up on the screen at the beginning, $114,457,768 to $39,722,689. So, I mean, they were just mm -hmm. at a deficit. And then they show you what the budget was. And, you know, how many times have B2B marketers sat in a room thinking, how am I going to compete with my largest Fortune 500 competitor? And you know what? This is part and parcel why these startups become acquisition targets. And it's all about the creativity and the agility of how they move. And, you know, that's super exciting and why talent goes to these startups. And then also you get team building and leadership. Brad Pitt did act like a tech bro sometimes, but he stuck to his vision. Not all the time is the leader the one who has the vision. A lot of times it could be the marketing leader and there is a lot of education that needs to be done to bring everyone along. And so sometimes it's a tough road and it doesn't necessarily result in that action or you have to go somewhere else. And then lastly, I think that it's amazing in overcoming resistance. You know, you talked about, remember the villain, the old time scout, and then Brad Pitt finally fires him. And he goes on when the A's are in their losing streak, because, you know, it always gets worse before it gets better, right? So in the movie, they go and they start losing and they lose like 14 games before they get into this winning 20 games in a row, which beats the record. And the guy gets right on the air after he's fired. And he says, this isn't a failed experiment. And so all these naysayers, yet sticking to it and making sure and carrying out the vision, these things are tough to do. And this is what B2B marketing is about because there are lead and lag times in marketing. And marketing is not something where you do it and instantly it happens. And so for me, when I watched this movie again, I was just, holy crap, this is about marketing and about B2B. Yes, your point, the numbers that are on the screen. So like 114 million versus 39 million. In the next like three years, the Yankees budget jumped to 250 million. So that's what I was thinking of. And, uh, and then eventually it sort of like normalized. But this idea that like how startup-y is that? Hey, by the way, you just rewrote the playbook. Your competitors, they got more funding. <laughs> You're staying the same. Yeah. But now they also know your playbook. So now you have to go and do this. And then Billy Bean did this for like 20 years. I mean, the A's were like competitive most seasons, you know, with some down spots in there. But it's like, it's not like he was like some one hit wonder GM. Like he built a way of thinking that was different and a culture of thinking that was different and a way to look at data and look at information. And now baseball is like, Basically, you can predict it all. Like they know every single piece of data that you could possibly know to the ends of the earth of, oh, this is a left-handed pitcher who does this, who's this tall going against someone who's a right-handed hitter, you know, who's this tall, who's, you know, this, I mean, they can do like anything with that. None of that stuff existed back then. And I feel, it feels the same way with marketing, right? It was like, you know, we have ABM tools, we have all sorts of, now we're looking at, you know, like dark funnel, we're looking at all these other things. We figured out like, oh, we got really good at spending money and figuring out, okay, can I get the ROI from this stuff with paid ads? And then we realized like, yeah, we way overspending for this stuff. And like, if you add up those marketing costs, plus the how much sales costs and how much commissions costs and how much customer success people get, and you go, 
these numbers all add up to us losing money on these deals. So like we have to, you know, dial it back. And so there's this sort of like ebb and flow of this that you leave the movie with to think of like, hey, they just changed baseball forever. And now you got to go do it again, right? And I just like love that mindset of like, it's not over. There's a next season. And, you know, and obviously the Red Sox win the World Series using sabermetrics not soon after that. And they have a much bigger budget. So, and, you know, spoiler alert, the A's never win the World Series, but they still change baseball. One thing that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is that all of these different metrics that everyone's looking at, you know, one of the things that he talks about is looking at the metrics in aggregate. And so everyone did in marketing look at these metrics separately. And that's why you got to this overspend, right? And so in my clients, you know, we look at, for example, lifetime value over cost of acquisition, right? Which is a little bit more about efficiency or a magic number, right? Which talks about comparing your change in annual recurring revenue over the total customer acquisition cost. What Billy did in the movie was he was putting them all together and putting a team together to perform in the aggregate, which was much different than these scouts were making decisions in the past about separate players. And that is really interesting, specifically when you look at sort of the mindset of kids these days. Like, you know, when I talk to my kids about sports, they all know the stats of all of these players, even when they're playing, you know, the fantasy leagues and how they compile their teams. It's all stats based. And that is not something that when we were kids that was prevalent. And I think that that's just part and parcel of how this movie changed culture and changed marketing. Yeah. I mean, when you see, you know, oh, they look good in uniform and the five tool, the prospect thing, you know, like that sort of stuff is like, well, we're always looking for the five tool prospect. And then, you know, you see this in basketball went to a similar thing and like, okay, well, if you have like this unicorn, well, it's like, if you can get like a seven foot three center who can shoot threes and dribble and do this, that you should just cash in all of your chips always to try to get this one person. They're like, well, that's actually one strategy that one team could be doing. And, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks get Giannis and then it, it ends up really well for them. Whereas like the Sixers get Embiid, which like hasn't ended up well for them, but maybe there's other things at play there. And like, and what I think is so interesting is that with the same process, with the same strategy, you can slightly tweak it to do something else. I think that, you know, I've talked about AI this way, but like, I feel like AI is this way where it's like, you could be the company that says, we are not going to put anything AI written on our website at all, that every single thing is going to be written by a human being. And we're only focused on stuff that human beings think. And that might work for you. You could be a company that says, we're only putting stuff that is AI generated on our site because we are embracing innovation. We are embracing change. We think that this is the future. And maybe that would work for you. So like, there's a lot of different ways to, I think, look at this stuff and look at data. And I think that when Billy Bean did certain things, like realizing that home runs were super valuable, which is like really obvious, but you have to get a player who can't run and can't catch and, you know, can't, steal bases they can only hit home runs that nobody else wants they see him as a bad player and you see them as a gem like those are the type of people or the pitcher who has the funky delivery like what are your marketing versions of that is it a channel is it a budget item 
Is it a way to create something that is consistent and repeatable that you know that, yeah, this isn't going to be perfect, but I know that I can, I can be consistent. A webinar format that you're like, I know this works. I know this is a great thing. If we can just keep cranking these out, I know that it's never going to be perfect, but we can keep doing it. And it's going to keep the lights on for this so I can focus my energy and effort on other things. So like, that's the sort of stuff that I think is like endlessly fascinating about Moneyball is like, where are the areas that other people have forgotten or overlooked? 100%. I think that two things in regards to that. First of all, stories are a communal currency of humanity. We react and respond and engage with stories. So when you talk about marketing and how you're going to engage with things, channels have a life. Understanding your ICP or your ideal customer profile and your target market, different industries, different companies have, there are differences in where you can understand your customer. And you have to do market research for this to understand where your customers are and where to meet them. And different channels work better for those companies. And one of the differences is, is that if you don't spend the time aligning your revenue team to understand that at the beginning, and you just rush right into the tactics, that's where you miss the mark. And that's where so many companies have missed the mark lately. And you get this overspend and sort of marketing on the back feet as opposed to the front feet. It's really about a strategy and how how best to spend the money. And I think that Billy shows us this. He wanted someone who could walk because at least they're getting on base as opposed to striking out. And it was very mathematical and more objective. It had nothing to do with the girlfriend or the guy's face or the uniform. It had to do with, hey, what are the chances or the probability that this is actually going to happen in the aggregate? And I thought that that was really interesting. And now, you know, we can measure that engagement. And so through experimentation, we can figure what that is. But a lot of companies still aren't doing that market research out there. And so they're not finding that fit. And that is where, you know, you've got to put those two pieces together so that you can make your marketing pop. Can we talk for a second about the adaptation? Because that's such a great point that they paint really clearly for the listeners. So like, as I sort of mentioned, when I first saw this, I was like, well, this isn't the whole story. In the same way, social network is very much the same way, like really well done film, but like not the whole story, right? But a great story. And I feel like they did an incredibly good job in this of making you understand like, hey, someone who gets walks is really important. And here's why. Like these little things that they signpost you so well on so that later in the story, when you find the person who is that person, oh, this person, like good looking guy, this person, weird delivery. Like every part of the story is so crafted so that as a viewer, you're doing that. And the writing, I mean, Sorkin's like ridiculously... I mean, he's Sorkin, but the writing is so good and it's so emotive and you just feel Billy's plight. Like you feel the existential dread of getting it wrong, of trying something that is counterculture, of firing the scouts that have been watching baseball for 40 years. Like you get that. And I feel like, you know, I mean, the, the actual story probably is that interesting, but they're able to tell it in an hour and a half or, you know, close to two hours that in a way that's really good. 
I agree. I think that, like you said, it's not at all. This guy, Bill James, I mean, you know, you get a little mention of him at the end where the yeah. Red Sox fire him. You get the tragedy that after Billy Bean has done all of this, he gets this amazing offer that was going to make him the highest paid GM in all of baseball, and he does not accept it. But this Sabermetrics, as Meredith was pointing out, started happening before this even mm-hmm. happened. You know, this movie even took place. And so I think that what you see is this is the experiment that happened. As you were mentioning, this is the gritty team with the real team, not that team of stars, the people's team, so to speak. And Billy Bean was the one who, you know, was able to see it through and win over Oakland. It's interesting. LeBron James said something the other day. He said, you know, one thing that you can never take away from someone is a record. Someone can get first and you can take away that first, but you can never take away a record. And still the A's, I believe, 20 wins in a row in a baseball game. I still think that they're the record holder. And Billy Bean did that with this team that had a budget that was just a fraction of what everyone else's was. And he did it with an approach that was so absolutely new and disruptive to the industry that he was a pioneer. I think I went to game 18 of the 20 game win streak and I was sitting in the like upper bowl, basically like third base side, way up, like with the Seagulls. And Bob Euchre. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was like one of the most electric like atmospheres ever. I think it ended on a walk off and like everyone goes crazy. It's like absolutely like total craziness. And I just remember like coming out, everyone's like chanting, let's go Oakland. It's like this whole crazy thing. And there was just like this like love for this team because they were misfits and because we were the underdog. And like, you just can't tell a story. And I feel like marketers, like this is an important piece for storytelling. Like the reason why we all love an underdog story, the reason why like so many of the best ones are underdog stories is just like, you can never truly love someone who is the most gifted person the way that you can love an underdog. And I I can promise you that like, I've been a fan of teams that spend all the money and spend all the budget and have all that stuff. There's an expectation to win. And when you have no expectations that it can surpass your wildest dreams and like that part that's so core to like storytelling to get someone to understand, to feel that rush of like, holy, like, are we good? Is this the year? Is this like whatever? Like those emotions are so strong. And in B2B marketing, it's like really hard to do that, right? Like if I sell you a software and it's supposed to be a 7 out of 10, it better be a 7 out of 10 because I'm promising you, the salesperson promised all this stuff, your marketing promised all this stuff, you're promising a great experience. And if it falls below that, well, it's just okay, right? You're maybe you're upset. If it meets it you're like yeah okay that's it did what it's supposed to do and to surpass it is incredibly difficult so in your marketing you need to find those customer stories where it went above and beyond where they tell their family and friends about it where it changed someone's career where it did that where it's like hey i was like a lowly associate i took a sales call with this person i convinced our leadership to buy this software 
Like I literally got promoted because of this thing. And it's the best thing that our company ever did. And our CEO talked about it on the all hands. Like those are the stories of transformation and things like that. Not like 17 X, you know, increase in productivity gains, blah, 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 blah. Cause that's not memorable. You, you remember the associate that got promoted, like that would stick with you. Those hero type of examples and authenticity that you're talking about. I mean, you know, there are a lot of examples, but there's a lot of ways that content is getting there. And when I think of amazing B2B content that goes there, I, I immediately go to some of the different customer stories, right? I mean, people buy from others like them. And also, we know that B2B buyers are not passive. They're out there scouring the internet to research your brand before sales even calls you. And so those that are authentic and have a strategy, meaning that they're talking consistently with a brand voice that is the same story and using messaging that's relevant and they understand their ICP's frustrations and pain points, that is where you, know, you build future relationships. When you're able to add value at each interaction, and a lot of B2B marketing is about educating and about giving that value of what you can achieve, you know, we have to remember that every single person that we sell to, they have their own desires and frustrations. And sometimes it's about them being promoted. Like you were just saying, you know, you talk to the associate and then they got promoted because they bought your product, right? How do you get them? there. It's not just about the CEO. And we saw a lot of this in the early days with Salesforce. We saw a lot of this in the early days with Marketo and mm -hmm. Eloqua and marketing automation. We saw this, you know, in past with Terminus and with demand base. And now I think that we're starting to see it with Notion. But there are a lot of brands out there that have built this advocacy just simply because they talk in a very authentic way, but mm -hmm. they are able to pinpoint problems that people have. One campaign that I especially like this year is by Atlassian, and it's called Impossible Alone. Mm -hmm. uh, thing, Atlassian products forever. But it's really true. And specifically these days where there's such a specialization of roles, you really can only achieve so much alone. And so bringing everything together, this is so true. And to your point, helping people get to the next level, that's what they want. How is your software or how is your product going to help people achieve their goals? It's that level of authenticity people want to help them get there. I love it. Anything else on uh, Moneyball? You mentioned it being an adaptation from the book. And I'm wondering yeah. if, I know like Peter Brand wasn't really Peter Brand, like Tim, you mentioned earlier. I'm wondering if there's some lessons or a lesson we could take away from just the kind of the creative choices between like what works for film versus or video versus what works in writing. And if that's something that we could use in marketing as well. Well, you know, video is or film is just a complete sensory experience. 
And so I love to read, and I'm sure you guys do too, but reading, it depends on how you read, right? You could mm-hmm. be reading for five minutes or you could be devouring a novel, right? So I think it depends. When you go into a movie theater and it's dark and the screen is huge and the music is there, and, and that was one thing actually absent in this film, and mm-hmm. I look for it, is there was hardly any music. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, there was, it, it was really missing. There was a bit, but I mean, there really wasn't that much. But I do think that, you know, what you both pulled out about like some of the different things, they kept on reappearing and that Sorkinism of like planting seeds and then bringing them back so that yeah. we would be familiar with them. Love that. Right. I thought that that was, he made it familiar with it, w- with us. So then all of a sudden we would be like, Wow. Yeah. But he did build that in of the underdog, which really, you know, that was super exciting. Then they went down and then they went way up. And I think that that was pretty electric to everyone. And anyone who's been in a company where you've tried something new and it doesn't work out at first and then you have to tweak it and then it starts getting better and better and better. And then you're on a roll as a team. That energy is electric and all it does is bring you together as a team. And I think that that is an amazing wave of emotion that he created in the film. Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me, that's the difference in in the adaptation is that they streamlined a ton of stuff and a ton of the baseball players and a ton of the prospects. Like if they redid it, if they remade it as like a a 10 episode series or even an ongoing series, which would actually be really cool. You could add in all the players, but they just, they removed a ton of the players and they removed a lot of the statistics because statistics are pretty boring. Right. And this is like a great piece of, of helpful marketing advice for people who live in, the data world who are selling software, data software and, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, stats are pretty boring, but stats give you a story that is extremely compelling in which there's human beings at the end of the statistic. So if left-handed people are better than right-handed people, and then you find the one right-handed person who, you know, bucks the trend, why do they do that? And you can dig into like, oh, it turns out that their left foot is five inches shorter than the right foot or whatever. And that's why they're, you know, whatever. Anyways, so it it leads to a story, like weird statistics pull to a human-centric story because stats are just not interesting of their own. And they're not memorable at all. And so I think that by the book adapting a lot of those things, combining characters, combining roles, combining sort of like archetypes, you lose obviously some accuracy to to what actually happened. But what you gain is a much more emotive story. Obviously, like adding in his family as part of it is like not really in the book. So adding that familial you know piece of it is really important to show this other side of him as a character. So there's a lot of stuff there that I think matters. But to me, most of all, is like, if you're selling stats, you got to be selling stories and you got to be selling the people at the end of that. And there's always something super fascinating when you get down, you know, into that stuff. 100%. I mean, I think that you said it. If you don't have a point of view, you don't have a story. Stats aren't going to sell you. All right. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you work with a lot of different startups. You've obviously been involved in a lot of different startups. What are the types of companies that you're working with and how do you sit down with them to think about their marketing strategy? Sure. So I work with startups and scale-ups and a lot of what my company or my clients are looking at these days 
are, you know, really how they can go to market more efficiently. 2023 has been a year full of challenges for a lot of companies, right? According to some information from GTM Partners, right, 81% of companies experienced a decline in their sales velocity. 54% of companies said that their marketing pipelines were negatively impacted. And 37% of companies said that their revenue is worse than expected. And so it really is about efficiency and effectiveness. And it's not only about spend, but it's about what should they invest in. With marketing, you have a possibility that's almost limitless. And so whether you're launching a new product or whether you're trying to go up market or if you're trying to acquire more customers, what is it that you should do and what channels should you invest in? And so, you know, what I'm doing is I'm working with my different clients to figure out what is the right marketing mix, where should they be investing, and how should they be going to market in a reasonable way where they can continue to grow with their teams and align with sales, product, customer success, and revenue operations. And then specifically thinking about content, obviously you advise a lot of people on their content strategy and how that fits in. How do you think about content? Well, you know, I think that in content, the first thing I would say is you've got to know who your ICP is. I mean, you've really got to understand who you're targeting and what is interesting to them. And again, I would say that there's certain things, right? You know, and how you strengthen your brand through content. Again, remember, Every B2B buyer out there is researching heavily the different options that they have out there. So content is a huge play in marketing-enabled growth, and they are going to research you before your sales is even uh, involved with them. Also, another thing, Ian, is that the buying committee oftentimes is getting larger. So there's more decision makers. And that means that you have to create content for more buyer personas that are out there. And so understanding who is out there and who is part of your buying committee is fundamental to be able to educate and persuade about why you're the right choice. So I would say establish a brand voice, be consistent about how you communicate value, humanize your brand story. People buy from people. So, you know, you can definitely have stats in there as we talk about, but they want to understand why they should buy from you. At the end of the day, they're going to be interacting with you. Create value at every interaction. Understand what that is. The best way to do that is to talk to current and future customers and understand their pain points. Be consistent. So if you have content that's produced across your organization or even through external networks, really make sure that you're training people why you talk in a certain voice and what that voice is. Use creative as a lever. I think that one of the things we've seen by a lot of companies that have gone out of business is a lot of insipid brands and messaging that didn't really make sense or you didn't really know what it was. I mean, get granular, know your audience. And then lastly, and this is so important, marketing revenue is a team sport, just like Moneyball. So align about what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, get feedback from the team, talk to sales, marketing, customer success, and revenue ops, get their feedback, and especially talk to your customers to make it better. I think that those are the key things to making your content better. From there, you're going to be able to build that editorial calendar, understand 
what channels are best to use, where to meet your customers, and then also experiment to do some great stuff. What about uh, ROI of content marketing? ROI, that's a great question. First of all, just to put a stick in the ground, I don't really like attribution. And let me tell you why. I think that it's a political exercise where people just want to cast blame. And so I think that a lot of times it's a waste of time. I think that, again, you know, you have to know who your ICP is and align with your team. I think that once you have an established content strategy with specific objectives that people agree on, you have to understand what your costs are, right? If you don't understand your costs, you can't get an ROI. And then you need to measure content engagement. You have to be using intent data. Intent data is going to show you what people are searching for. It's going to give you a lot of different keywords. Again, there's a lot of subjectivity that comes when you're developing your content strategy of what you think people like. When you use market research and intent data or third-party content tools too or data tools, you're going to be able to enrich that. And you know you need to be able to heighten the organizational awareness around what lead and lag times are for really what your marketing campaigns are going to bring. A marketing campaign may bring impact over the next quarter, not tomorrow. And so it's very important to know that when you're calculating an ROI. And then I love to benchmark sales velocity, average contract value, closed one rates. These things are all really important, specifically when we're running ABM campaigns. I still do run the double funnel. I do not believe in spray and pray, but we do run different channels out there. And, you know, I do believe in paid. We're using a lot more influencer and creator type campaigns. And I think that the dark funnel, as you mentioned earlier, is alive and well. And I think it's about getting people to understand all of the different content channels that are out there, such as podcasts. And, you know, how many people are listening to them walking the dogs and how it's a great way to engage with your brand. And people want to be not only educated, but entertained. All right. What stuff is out there that you've been seeing and liking? I know you mentioned the Atlassian Impossible Loan campaign, and uh, I know you have an, an eye out there for it. I'd say there's two more things that I would say. One is there's a company by the name of Mutiny. They had an event called Survivor, and it was, I thought it was excellent. Yeah, not only did it bring industry leaders together, but the packaging was new, it was irreverent, it was gamified, it happened over a month, it was super educational, it wasn't all about them, but it was consistently branded, and it built community around who they were. And for a lot of people who didn't know them, they certainly got a wind of who they were. In COVID, when we were in webinar land, this certainly broke it up. And I thought this was tremendous this year. And I would say another piece that I found to be fascinating, and I had to really think about this one, was there was a paper that was out by HBR that was called The Jagged Edge of Technology that was about you know how AI would change the world. And it was researched by BCG and Wharton and Harvard and stuff like that. But there was a Substack post by Ethan Mollick that was called Centaurs and Cyborgs on the Jagged Frontier. And 
I keep on going back to this because we are in the world of AI and we're all talking about it and using it. And I find this to be fascinating. And when you're talking about written content, this isn't very long. It does have a lot of stats in it. I just tend to be more technical reader and writer. But I think that it's incredibly timely and disruptive. And uh, it just shows you the different types of content that we can consume. Gosh, Tim, we could go for hours. What else? What else do startups need to think about? What else do marketers need to think about? Well, Ian, I think that brand is more important today than ever. Given the intense competition, build the brand incrementally. It's been a bad word for B2B for a long time. Don't let this happen to you. A lot of companies have gone by the wayside because they did not build a strong foundation for their brand. And I believe that the strongest brands are built internally and they share employee advocacy first. And once they've got that advocacy, they go externally and they build that strength outwardly. So with content, I think it's a pillar of that brand strength. And I think that the stories that resonate with humans and that pull people to work with others are a great way to get people to interact with a company and to, at the end, buy product. You know, you, you talked about authenticity earlier. I believe it was the word of the year, says LinkedIn, and I think it's appropriate. And, you know, you've talked about in the past how important authenticity is. And, you know, you said that it's relatable and relevant. And I think that we're pretty good at relevant. <laughs> like, we get that. Mm -hmm. We are rarely relatable because we don't actually tell the stories in a way that is how it really went down, right? It's like, A, we had end of quarter funds, we had to do something, they had to make it happen. And, you know, it didn't happen that year, we were supposed to do this big thing, implementation went horrible, crazy haywire, this, that, the other, they righted the ship, got us back on track. And honestly, the software's been doing pretty good ever since like nobody wants to hear you know that story if you're if you work for that company but the truth is that story is being told anyway that person is telling that story the real story to your prospects anyways so like just own it just get in front of it tell the story the right way make it relatable everybody knows it's not perfection nothing is perfection and if you can create a more authentic voice and more authentic stories and share those things, then you're going to be better off. And if you do the opposite and make everything sit in your polished, you know, tower, then uh, you better hope that you deliver on the promise. Tim, what else? Anything else? F any final thoughts for our listeners? If you, obviously, if you're a startup and you're looking for looking for advice or trying to figure out your ICP, trying to figure out your go to market, talk to Tim. Obviously, but any final thoughts? Anything to plug here? I want to say this has been a blast. I've enjoyed it. Moneyball parallels B2B SaaS and technology. And this has been an amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you, Ian and Meredith. Likewise. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios. B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com.
Hollywood-style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>